once the world was full of wonders. But it belongs to humans now. We have all but disappeared. Demons, vampires, and witches hiding in plain sight. And we're live. Welcome back, pop culture theologians, or should I say witches or vampires, vampire? Well, either way, welcome back to the second episode of season two for Pop Culture Theologians. Um, we are so glad you're joining us. Um, you can find us and make sure you're following us on Twitter at Pop Theologians. You can also um, follow me on social media at my basic screen. I'm at J Erickson 85. Marcy, what about you? Hey, everyone. Uh, happy Thursday. It is Thursday. Um, you, y'all can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can, uh, definitely tweet us, uh, your opinions on episodes, send us your weird news for the week. We are waiting to interact with you all. And, and it's always also, great when we do. We love interacting with you. Some of you have tweeted us and we love it. We love talking to you. And we also want to give a shout out to the engaged gays who hosts us every week and, um, make sure you go check out that website website that's engaged gaze g-a-z-e although we are some engaged gays sometimes if we need to be that is true that is true <laughs> okay so marcy what weird freaky crap happened this week so it's funny because i was putting this together and like everything i was coming up with was political and i was like wait i was like we promised we would just do some weird shit and not get political so I, but I struggled because there's great news. Just stretch for us. Stretch, right. So let's start with our first weird news story of the week. Uh, there is an art installation in Africa right now that will be playing Toto's Africa on a loop perpetually powered by the sun. Uh, like my version of hell. Oh my God. So I think there's two kinds of people in this world, right? Like those who absolutely love Toto's Africa. I am in that camp. It is my happy song. I can play it on a loop like a crazy person. Or those who are like, yeah, put it in a desert so I never have to listen to it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's I love the- Weezer's version of it. Get out of here. That is such trash. <laughs> no. Any version, well, no, I will say the new Pitbull version of Toto's Africa. Pitbull has one? Yeah, it is. Listeners, do not go listen to it. It is such an atrocity. But uh, but yeah, so the Namim Desert will be playing this, uh, this uh, song for an eternity, is what the artist uh, Max Seidentoff has said. So I think that's great. I love more Toto in this world. So, John, I'm so sorry that that does not bring you joy. As long as it's the Weezer version, I'm fine. (laughs) Our second news story of the week was, so I thought this was Florida. And then I realized that there's been multiple stories like this for the past couple weeks. But in York, Pennsylvania, we we have been introduced to Wally, a four and a half foot long emotional support alligator who is now visiting retirement homes uh, in his area. So when I first heard this, I was like, that is like the most Florida story in the world. Like, let me bring my emotional support alligator to make elderly people feel safe and and happy. Uh, So the fact that it's Pennsylvania is like bananas. Like, I didn't even- feel better about your people, Marcy? No, because then I looked it up and apparently we have emotional support alligators as well in Florida and people are super kind of like dying over it because it's like, Similar to the emotional support peacock that tried to get on a Delta flight a couple months back. Like, this is not a good look, folks. Like, I look, I struggle with, like, severe anxiety and panic attacks. And, like, my dogs have actually been, like, an extremely therapeutic um, thing in my life. And I understand the need for therapy animals. But, like, I just can't wrap my head around an alligator being a therapy animal. I can't. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm so happy for Wally and that he's doing things with his life. Um, his owner uh, says that he's just like a dog. He just wants to be loved and be pet. So, and then one day when that owner doesn't wake up because he's been eaten by Wally. Right. We'll see what happens. It's, it's just kind of crazy. So our third crazy story of the week, which is my favorite one and I've been following, uh, is so Amanda Teague who is a 46-year-old woman uh, from Ireland, 
uh, she's the woman who married the ghost of a 300-year-old pirate. So, folks, strap in for some devastating news. <sighs> Amanda and her pirate ghost have broken up. Uh, rest in peace. Rest in peace. So originally the wedding to her soulmate took place on board a boat off international waters, but it looks like they've cut it, uh, they've cut it short. Like it just didn't work out. And, um, she took to social media to let us all know that romance is dead and not even a dead guy that doesn't exist wants to be married to Amanda. So that is I mean, a lot. Can you blame him? That, I mean, <laughs> we don't. I don't know this person, so I shouldn't be so shady. But any person that's gonna marry like a, a ghost pirate, well, I guess we are watching and recapping. I was gonna show say, are we like, like are we really like, ones to judge? <laughs> like all this stuff. So I guess we really shouldn't cry because I'll probably be that like seventy year old man that marries like a fairy or something like that, like in the gardens or something. Who knows? Maybe. I can't wait for you to marry a fairy. Me either. <laughs> I will say, John, that if no one's seen it, the best Lifetime Christmas movie this year was like a Christmas ghost. And its exact like plot was this girl inherits a B&B and there's a ghost that she falls in love with and their love transcends time and death. And like that was the highlight of my December. So there you go, folks. I think that's probably a great segue into our discussion of the episode, if there ever was one. When we start talking about life or Lifetime or Hallmark Christmas movies, I think <laughs> you have to move on. <laughs> I feel like what do you think? It. Let's do it. Let's, let's talk about episode two of A Discovery of Witches. All right, so... The episode opens with some sexy songs, by the way. I love the song. It's called Go Ask Alice, right? Did I get that right? Well, whatever. I never get musical songs right, so I just have to take pleasure in the fact that I knew this one. But we open in Venice, and boy, are the vampires hungry. So we sit there, and you see this very sexy, like, kind of interlude between um, a woman and a tourist. Uh, and this really teaches us one thing and this is to not talk to strangers that make googly eyes on you so all of you that are out there maybe don't follow a googly-eyed stranger into the alleyways of venice to go have a quick fuck if you don't know them and marcy i always love thinking about this it's kind of like when i watch buffy like who did you think the vampire was originally in the scene so okay i know you're hoping that i'm gonna say him and I, it wasn't him, but I will tell you why. I do think that his gaze is supposed to make us think it's him and to challenge our preconceived notions of the hunter and the huntress, right? Um, this doesn't work for me because I am a big fan of the woman who plays Juliet. She is a Harry Potter alum. She plays uh, Harry Potter's love interest in the first installment of uh, The Deathly Hallows. Uh, so... Is it first installment or is it Half Blood Prince? It's, it's Half Blood Prince because they're Half Blood Prince, stage. right? She's she's the one who's like Harry Potter's a tosser, and I'm like, so I was excited to see her, and I was like, oh okay, so I was paying attention to her, but I I know where you're going with this, and yes, like the focus in that scene is supposed to challenge our assumptions that men hunt and women don't, and anyone who knows a sexually liber- liberated woman knows that women hunt just as much as men. Exactly. And she's hungry. Yeah. And there's something feminist to me about the idea of like a a hungry female vampire that's hunting for some male blood, right? Like, um, I know it's murder, but it's symbolic murder. So I enjoyed it. I'm okay with it. Me too. So the show starts, like John let us know last week, with Matthew's kind of monologue about how the world belongs to humans now. Um, And Okay, I have to say, I'm going to be a little, like, I'm going to be honest. Like, I am dying over some of the, like, drama in this show, right? So this beginning feels like an epilogue for Downton. And if anyone's listened to some of our other episodes, y'all know I hate a fucking epilogue. But uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, this is like Downton. Um, So clearly, Matthew is extremely rich, right? Um you walk he like walks into his like Downton Abbey-esque home and there's all these like 
paintings of like what I'm assuming is his legacy, his family uh, throughout the years, right? Which makes me think that that is supposed to let us, the viewers, know that vampires have kind of been in the upper echelons of society forever. Um, and then there's a white butler. And like, I felt like I was like, I was in that SNL skit with white butler, but there's a white butler and he's apparently like Matthew's <laughs> right-hand man. Um, so white butler's like, Matthew, it's so good to see you. And Matthew's like, I'm craving Diana. And they kind of break that shit down, right? Um, so I guess it's dangerous to be Diana because Matthew is super into her pheromones, right? He's like super into her. Yeah, like he's like out there in like the British countryside and he can still smell her sweat. So he can still smell her and he right. I'm sure and, Teresa Palmer though smells like really good. I know she's so great. Uh, she's but yeah, White up. Butler is very worried about Diana. Totally. And so we um, go back, change scenes, and we are in Diana's uh, bedroom and she's having some sort of dream. And so she wakes up in a nightmare, kind of like our first freaky news story from our last episode. And she's wrapped up in spider webs and she opens her covers and there's like a total creepy ass spider that like scares her and then she's woken up from her dream and she's kind of dazed and she notices the rune is still on her hand because FYI, when a sacred or magical object like burns you, it's going to stay there. So there's some meaning to it going forward. But we then cue into her and uh, don't, I'm so sorry, Diana, the youngest tenured professor at Yale University, we go into seeing um, where her salary is going because her wardrobe is everything. It is everything. I'm like counting down really beautiful blue coats. And we're at, I think we're at three gorgeous coats by this episode. Maybe that should be like a drink. So like every blue yeah, coat. Yeah, you if like you're listening drink. and you're not driving to work, take a shot every time we mention one of Diana's coats because they're brilliant. They're so beautiful. So we transition out of Diana having this night terror, uh, her Ron Weasley style night terror, to a sexy man on a boat and I'm all like new boat who dis like who is this <laughs> like I <laughs> I think I found my like show crush so he also is wearing a gorgeous coat take a shot he's wearing this gorgeous coat and it's over his shoulder um and John I've got to ask you so I no longer live somewhere that is super chic I live in Miami which is just trashy but um LA, I remember. Apologies to all of our listeners in Miami. Y'all, I will buy y'all some coffee if you'll be my friends down here. Um, but what is your take on the coat over shoulders look? 1000%. I'm here for it. I it do it all the so time. So sexy, isn't it? There I is love it. Nothing sexier than like having the coat over your shoulders and then like using your arms. Like it's like that winglet type of outfit, it's like a cape. Like, we need all of these things back, and we need to do them more. It's a sen certain sense of, like, style. You're, like, 6'4", though, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you have shoulders. I'm, like, a human Muppet. So, like, if I do it, it just slides off my shoulders because there's no sexy bone structure on my body. And I'm like, this fucking sucks. This is not meant for me. So <sighs> I will try again. Like, I might have to get shoulder implants. But, uh, but I, love, I love that look. So Sexy Man on the Boat is looking for the body of that Taurus that was killed by Juliet, our beautiful vampire huntress, right? And we find out that the Taurus that was killed was a French tourist. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if we're supposed to keep that in our back pocket, listeners. But he was a French man, and he died a very sexy death, so... Well, I think it's really important, and I won't spoil anything, but his first name is Matthew, so... Oh, true. Matthew Beneve, right? Yeah, um, I don't speak a French, but... Matthew Boneve. Matthew Boneve. But um, the person, uh, Juliet, that did him in, um, let's say she has a certain affinity for people named Matthew. Don't we all? <laughs> I mean, it's a sexy name. I, ha I dated a guy named Matthew. I have never dated a guy named Matthew, but I did. I did have things with like a litany of Michaels. So I was an. I was like Matthew Catholic Central. Right, I was Matthew adjacent. <laughs> like you probably had the Matthews, the John, Mark, the Mark Thomas. Look, if they were in seminary, I was down to date. So <laughs> we'll talk about that later. 
So back to our Matthew. So Matthew is driving along with White Butler. White um, Butler. White Butler in the Highlands. And I honestly, um, because all I do is just rewatch The Crown on Netflix, which is like one of the best shows ever. Me too. Um, I just put it on. Like I've seen the episodes like a zillion times, but I just keep watching them. Um, but my thing is like, I feel like this is the exact scene that I've seen in The Crown when they're like, or like in the movie, The Queen, where they're in the Highlands. And I just want to know, like, is this like an area that they all just like go and use half the time? I know it's the Highlands and I know it's a large area and it's beautiful, but that's where we are. And um, basically because Matthew is so Diana crazed and he needs to feed, um, he and White Butler go out and he goes hunting. And so, um, he goes and he sees this beautiful stag and unlike in twilight where edward like goes hunting the the fawn or like the deer or whatever it is and it's just so weird looking i related better to this scene and so there is like this beautiful stag and i just see matthew running up against it the stag runs away because it recognizes a predator and then i don't know the death scene between the two is very beautiful like the stag realizes like it's about to die but it like bows to him and then Matthew kills it okay so I always think of this area as Balmoral which is like where the queen spends like it's like her favorite time uh throughout the years when she spends it out uh in the Scottish Highlands so I'm with you like I would totally go spend all my time there (laughs) I would love to go there right now let's do it let's do it so um, we go back to Diana at the library because she's the youngest tenure professor at Yale University. So of course she has to be in a library all the time, right, Marcy? Well, obviously, like that's all you do. You just sit at the library and hate yourself and then go home and eat ice cream. So she's at the library and again, she's being watched, right? We knew this because um, Matthew had told her, like, if you look at the library, you're being like super watched right now. So in walks Peter Knox, right? And obviously word about the manuscript has spread and he, look, let's be honest, like he looks like the type of guy who is either a villain or your grandpa that you want to hug. I feel like Diana went with grandpa. So when he introduces himself and is like, you know, the word has spread, like, uh, let's take a walk. I knew your mother. She doesn't have the natural instinct to be like, oh shit, no, no, thank you. Um, and so she's like, oh, you knew my mother? And Peter Knox is like, yeah, we knew each other as teenagers. I didn't know your father well. So I think that's important. I think the fact that he kind of dismisses the father is a big deal, right? Um, and oh, yeah. give me a second to explain, because remember, John knows what's up. I don't know shit. Um, but then he does say, like, your mother was passionate, clever, and stubborn, um, and he thought about her throughout the years, but his aunts were too, her aunts were too protective, right? So I just want to bring up Severus Snape for a second, right? So when he's Who's Severus like, Snape again, Marcy? I don't know. <laughs> he's the man in my locket right now <laughs> uh, around my neck. Obviously, I'm like a huge Harry Potter dork, but this moment rang very Potter-esque to me, which is when... Um, and for anyone listening who has not read the Harry Potter series and is like, why are we talking about the children's book? Stop listening to this podcast and go read the books and then come right back to this moment. Deal? Because that's the only acceptable thing to do if you haven't read Harry Potter. But um, it feels like a Severus Snape moment when we find out that he had loved uh, Harry's mother, Lily, since they were children and that his, he had this like deep set hatred for uh, James Potter, um, Harry's dad, I want to make dun, 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 a prediction here that we're going to go down a very similar plot line here, which is Knox is a bad, broken man. I, I would say he's probably worse than Snape, but maybe not. Um, and that he is either intimately involved with Diana's parents' death or I'll eat my left foot. <laughs> Well, don't give up your cute left foot, but I think you might be on to something, but I guess we'll find out. Or we'll you'll find, find out. out. I'll find out. You won't. There um, are parts though that I also don't remember, like, because I read the book when it first came out. So, like, I myself, like, had the book out with me when I was um, 
uh, watching the second episode because I was rewatching it because I'm on like episode seven because all the episodes dropped at once. And like I too am even like, oh, oh, that's right. So right. Like, I get surprised here and there too um because also like the second episode like the first episode was great but the second episode like really picks up some steam i agree i felt i felt much more into the second episode in the sense of like starting to feel out relationships and characters so so diana's walking with Knox. he's acting a little like you know like Creepy. paternal right but then we see i have okay i think she's scandinavian i kept calling her the russian witch but that woman that he initiated into the coven is following them. So yeah, then we she's tra- definitely Scandinavian. Well, she's right. a Scandinavian actress. Right. Um, we transition back very quickly um, to Downton Abbey with Matthew and the white butler. And white butler is like, dude, you've got to leave her alone. And then Matthew's like, well, I can't because she's got the book. I'm just going to start calling this book different things. Asham 6755, whatever. She's got the motives are really clear. Like, remember last episode where he's like, What do you want? He's like, The book, right? He's like, Not, I need to get to this book. And this episode breaks down the book and why we need it more. So, um, but yeah, no, White Butler is sounding the alarm. Diana is in danger around Matthew. She's she's pretty much in danger around anyone. I think this is definitely what the Downton Abbey movie is going to be because I think Matthew just killed everyone in Downton Abbey and then, like, now that's where he lives. Right. No, I really like this as a as a Downton epilogue. I wonder, we'll have to ask the author if that's like what she had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> Are you writing the Downton Abbey sequel right now? Well um, done. Well, well done. done. Well, so we come back to Knox um, and he is grilling Diana on the book. So like, dude, take a clue because like no means no hashtag no means no um so he tried to check it out but he couldn't because surprise diana's the only one that can access it so they both speculate and you know we remember that the front page had a picture of the alchemical child which comes back up later in this episode but Knox lets diana know that the book carries the first witch's spells and many um aspects about what's in this book is um potentially has the fact of how vampires were created or how witches created vampires and that and this is the big point if witches created them they can uncreate them and Knox tells her to take the book back out and get it because they need this type of weapon against the vampires um and he grabs her and he also threatens her like i'll see you again diana because she says no she's not going to do that diana's not you know going to kill an entire species and that's just not who she is and she leaves the library and leaves him alone and um hello peter knox like hashtag no means no give it up right and this gives us an idea of where this entire story is going right so we've got warring factions trying to get their hands on a book that has potentially the origins of vampires. Vampires would like to continue living, which is why they want the book. Witches, and I'm guessing other creatures, even though from my understanding, it looks like vampires and demons get along a little better than vampires and witches. But witches in particular, or a certain faction of them, would like to get rid of vampires. And in comes Diana with her magical, uncontrollable awesomeness and her tenure. So at switch- Yale University, <laughs> right? So we switch back to Venice with our model man, who you know how I feel about him. Oh, um, he, was, he is devilishly handsome. My God, yeah. <laughs> I like start blushing. I, I do. Oh, yeah. So he goes to tell Juliet's father what he has discovered, which, in my understanding, is that Juliet went a hunting, right? So he lets Juliet's father, and I'm hoping father is in a loose term because some of these scenes get a little like weird, but he lets uh, her father know the police are now involved in that murder. And I just, I, I, I don't know, these Venice scenes are a little wonky to me, um, but I'm sure they're building up narrative that I will understand later, right? I think so. Okay, so back to Diana, John. So we come, so they, there's a lot of scene swapping here. So back to there. Diana, and Diana is talking to her BFF and find my friends locator, 
Jillian about the book. And if you all remember from the first episode and our, uh, of the podcast and the series, Jillian's motives, like we really don't know whose side she's on. I think like Julian, uh, Jillian, sorry, is like one of those individuals like wants to be like in the super popular crowd. Um, and that's definitely like the coven. But then, you know, her cool friend, Diana, like is also her friend and she really doesn't know what to do. And she segues to power, I think at the end of the day, but we really see, you know, Diana's trust in her in this episode um, come out a lot more. And ultimately what happens as a result of that um, shocks Diana. So um, Jillian, She's what I like to call thirsty. <laughs> she is thirsty. So yeah, she is encouraging is her, like Diana, to, to hand him over the book. She's like, you definitely need to give him this book. And like Diana claims, like, you know, she just wants to lead a normal life. Like, hey, girl, like, don't we all, don't we all want to be the youngest tenured professor at Yale University, soon to be tenured at Oxford and having fabulous jackets? We all want to be normal, too. But, you know, Diana lets Jillian know that she's intrigued by Matthew. You know, there's this guy named Matthew who, um, from all of our interactions between them, like he's either going to eat her or he's just creepily following her. So more to come. But, he, you know, he seemed to know a lot about the book. But unlike Peter Knox, who like left all of his cards on the table, like Matthew's like, you need to protect this book. Like, I'm only here for positive reasons. Like, unlike some of the people you're going to meet, I need to protect you. And Diana is so confused why her people, witches, right, are so prejudiced against vampires. Because remember, Diana didn't live or grow up in like these types of worlds where it was one against the other, like demons versus vampires versus witches versus like, you know, normal people. And so she isn't she's very unfamiliar with like this way of thinking and that really does save her in the end because you see um the quandary she's really coming up against where she's like i'm not handing you over a book where you're gonna be able to commit genocide over a whole species like i don't think so right right and then we go back to the white butler <laughs> we love white butler it's like really short scenes which i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest is one of my biggest pet peeves in a show is not being able to kind of focus in on something. But we're back with White Butler. White Butler now agrees with Matthew that, you know, Ashmole 6555 needs to come back to the hands of vampires. Um, but Matthew does make a comment that he doesn't actually think the origins of vampires are in there in the sense of, like, that, that like, witches created vampires so they could uncreate them with whatever's in there. His theory is there's there's obviously stuff about the origins of vampire in there, but it does not give power, like, over vampires, over to the witches. So back to our vampire club, the Genetics High School's club, our vampire Kiki, they are testing blood <laughs> to see if they can figure out why they can't seem to sire any more vampires. And as a woman in my 30s, I'm like, guys, why are you trying to get people pregnant? Like, maybe let it go. Like, um, Also, we need birth control up in here. Right. So, but obviously they're very concerned because I guess if you really think about it, if they cannot sire, vampires die out probably very quickly. But wait, no, they don't. It just means they maintain their population from here on out, so long as they stay away from garlic and steaks and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But they're very, very worried. Um, and I'm guessing that this is a major plot point, the fact that um, Matthew and the Genetics Club say that demons are starting to show really strange signs of insanity, Witches are losing their power, so they're becoming less and less powerful, and then obviously vampires can no longer sire anyone. Um, so Diana, we, we transition out of the uh, Vampire's Genetic Club, and we run into the vampire, Diana. The va vampire Gen Kiki. The Vampire Gen Kiki, the VGK. The VGK. Uh, we transition straight out of that to Diana taking a lovely run with her pheromones. So Diana's running. She's very active. Not only is she the youngest tenure professor at Yale University with fabulous coats and being sought after by the sexiest vampires and all the creatures in the land, she also has time to work out. So hashtag hate you because right? I barely have time to like use. I don't have time like, to finish my dissertation. How are you running? Like, seriously, like, how are you running? Like, and if she starts knitting in any of these episodes, she's not. She doesn't knit in the book. But I'm saying, if she does one more, like, extracurricular thing, I'm gonna literally... No, scream. it's like she's the type of person who has time to sous vide a steak. Like, I, like, I am reaching levels... You know of she's a good cook. 
Oh, well, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Diana's everything I'm not. <laughs> I mean, like, it's just crazy. Okay, so I digress because Marcy and I are very triggered bitter. Bitter. and bitter by this. But <laughs> Diana's running, and then she stumbles into our favorite Rush, Marcy's Russian, mine Scandinavian witch. Um, and, you know, she meets her, and, you know, they begin um, to really sit there, and they have a, they have a little moment, um, and she begins to cast a spell, or, like, having a seizure, and I'm really sure about what her powers are at the moment, because she hasn't really ever used them, um, but Diana really is cut off to her powers, and I really want to explore this, and I know the show and the book does this, um, I'm really have to see it visualized, but, you know, Diana can't control her powers. And it's, is that from trauma? Is that from misogyny? Is that from, you know, just not practicing them enough? Like, I don't know. Um, but her conversation with this other witch and, you know, saying someone did something to her and that, you know, but like, so, like no, she's witch, doing like, it to herself. The witch like touches her and then has the seizure thing where she kind of sees into Diana, right? Yeah. And so that is why I feel like what we're seeing is repressed magical power due to some type of trauma. I think what we had thought was happening was she was just full out rejecting magic. And then when we got some background on her parents were killed because people thought they were witches in a village, uh, that was correct, but that's an awful way to die. Um, that maybe she was afraid of magic because her parents had died there, but then this, I think she's Scandinavian, I just called her Russian, but uh, the Scandinavian witch that joined the, um, the coven with Knox and Jillian, I think that she is implying that there is a very deep, dark reason that Diana is not in touch with who she is, right? Because I think you cannot separate magic from who she is. Like, and here I'm going to take it back to some some of the J.K. Rowling, uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, understanding of magic, right? But like, magic is a part of who she is in the way that she, being a woman is who she is. And being, you know, a daughter is like there is nothing that she can do to sniff it like to snuff it out right it's just it's in there so she's doing harm to herself she's like for lack of a better analogy she's in the closet when it comes she's to totally that, in the closet right? and so if there's anything we learned from harry potter is that no one fares well in a closet right and they need to get out you need to get out of the closet if there's anything we learn from life come out come out wherever you come are out. It's your duty and it's your glory. <laughs> so what we really see, though, is Diana's relationship to magic changing with some of these hostile men, though, that come into her life. And, you know, so Diana calls home or to her aunts to ask about Peter Knox. And um, she, get, she learns that Peter was in love with her mom, shocker, and that he had been involved with dark magic and they had a, a serious falling out. So John, ergo, can we have a Marcy, you were right moment? You Ooh. were right, Marcy. I Slam mean, dunk. Slam dunk. <laughs> you'll see Peter's true colors come out a little bit more, though. Oh, is this where we sing Cindy Lauper? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So um, Diana learns a little bit more about who this Peter Knox is. But as I think you can see, she already knows she can't trust him. So, you know, it's only been confirmed now. Right. Right. And look, I think it's important to remember that all fantasy is a metaphorical analogy, metaphorical. It's a metaphor for our experience as humans, right? So I am keeping a very close eye on what these backstories say about like the human experience, right? So Knox is, is definitely speaking to our understanding of loss and how it changes us, right? Um, loss can change us in ways that we are never prepared for. But one of the things we see a lot in stories is that loss, particularly in men, when they're not prepared to, to handle the deep emotions of loss, hashtag toxic masculinity, leads to darkness, right? Um, and we see this time and time again in fantasy stories. Uh, we see it in Lord of the Rings. We see it in C.S. Lewis. Um, and then we obviously see it in, in Harry Potter and we're seeing it here. And then also the fact that an empowered child is a free child, right? And so when I think of Diana and to a certain extent hiding everything in, um, fear of the self is so damaging to a person. So I'm keeping an eye out for that stuff. But back to Fair Verona with Juliet whose dad is still really upset. And I'm really hoping he's not her dad because it's about to get gross. 
Um, it's about to get gross. Right. Now we find out that my boyfriend, my sexy vampire, who clearly has it out for Juliet, his name is Domenico. So Domenico and Marcy forever. <laughs> Such a cutie. But Juliet's father. Domsey. We'll call you Doms. Hashtag Domsey. You can just call me his, John. <laughs> Oh, okay. You're throwing all your feminist virtues out the window. <laughs> a feminist knows what she wants. So <laughs> Juliet's father True. is so upset that Juliet went hunting, right? Um, and that she killed Matthew the Frenchman. So he, okay, John, help me out here. So he bites her neck. And I'm like, dad? Like, no. And so he bites her neck. And then I guess when vampires bite each other, they can see into each other's pasts. And we get a vision of Juliet in some ye olden times having carnal relationships with our good real Matthew of Downton Abbey. Am I reading that correctly? Yes, you are. So that's why when in the opening scene, when he asked her, when she asked him what his name was and she said, he said, Matthew, um, like it only made her, like if vampires have blood, like boil even more because she was so turned on because she's deaf got a thing for Matthew. And she deaf does not like anyone getting in the way of her man. If you can see my segue into future episodes. No, no, I I can't because I'm like, she's, where is her and Matthew? I don't know. But obviously this is supposed to key us in that Juliet and Matthew have a history and White Butler has been kind of like annoying about like any woman you get near, it becomes a problem. So I'm wondering if he sired Juliet, Uh, but nothing makes this scene okay with the dad having the like really awkwardly sexy bite of her neck. I was like super grossed out and like, I understand like, that there's vampire lore and like it makes sense that he bites her to see this history that then enrages him but like ew like ew sorry i'm not here for that right so then we switch back to white butler uh does white butler have a name well i don't remember his name but he's also um he's a demon i believe or he's like that explains it i was like white butler the house elf because i don't have anything to i'm go pretty with. sure he's a mythical creature like he's a demon or something like that Right. He reminds me of Mr. Tumnus, except with legs. I love but Mr. Tumnus. Same here. I've like, <laughs> Same here. I would totally be Mr. Tumnus's girlfriend, too. So Matthew and White Butler, they're playing chess, how symbolic, and having like these metaphorical conversations through the playing of like the queen and whatnot. And um, there's this moment where White Butler is like, hey, there's more to the game than protecting your queen. And I'm like, bitch, I think he's trying to warn you that you're going to hurt Diana by trying to protect her. But Matthew does not seem to listen to White Butler at all. At all. No, he he definitely doesn't. And basically what we see is Matthew decides to go and leave and go get the book from Diana. And he's like, I'm going to not take any of your advice. Um, He clearly wants the book. And so the butler reminds him, what he happened we don't know we'll find out hopefully and he leaves but then we come to diana at an academic party because all good academics at oxford who are tenured and have fabulous coats go to fabulous parties um and you know her talk that she gave in the first episode is infamous everyone knows who she is that's why she's gonna have tenure like at every university known to man and um (laughs) and i love how in our episode notes marcy puts that slughorn is very into her work (laughs) The professor there is very, very into her work. So Marcy always relates everything back to Harry Potter. And there's like a scene, obviously, in Harry Potter where Slughorn only is attracted to like the most brilliant students and minds. And so he's obviously this person that plays them, the actors, into Diana. And, you know, these folks... um, I don't know if all of them are creatures. It's not the actual Slughorn actor, but like, it's just, I got that vibe. Yeah, no, I totally got that too. And I see, I love in your notes that everything's always related back to Harry Potter. But um, so I don't think all these folks are creatures. I think most of them are humans. Um, But this professor wants Diana to meet someone who specializes in the occult. And lo and behold, who is it? Oh, that's right. It's the hashtag white guy. It's Peter Knox. And okay, this is where Peter Knox's true colors really come out. So not only is he an asshole, but he criticizes her for thinking she has no aptitude for magic, that she's completely not like 
um, in line with her kind, like cute, like dualistic language, like us versus them here. Um, you know, he really urges her to reconsider. It's like, no means no, buddy. And that, and like with all good assaulters, he tells her he will force her if he needs to. And so he starts to use occupancy and he pushes himself into Diana's head and we start to really see this moment where Diana's magic, just like before, it comes out when she's when she needs it the most to protect herself, when she's frustrated, but her power comes out most of all. And as she's leaving, he goes to the window, he gets into her head again, and then she tells him to get out of her head, and she shatters all the glass around the window, and you truly get a sense of actually how powerful Diana is. Right. Um, and then like Knox later on is like grabbing a coffee with Jillian and complains about this, right? He's like, she's super strong. She, she did an elemental spell, um, which I guess isn't rare. I, I don't know. Um, There's different levels of magic and like only certain witches or like old, like really powerful witches can perform certain stuff. So that that's why I like, and you'll see, and this is an, a spoiler alert, but like she performs other magic in later episodes that have not been seen for like centuries. And that's why people think she's so powerful and why she could conjure up the ash mole. So we need to. Right. And so I think like Diana has that moment. So she knocks on the door finds Knox at Jillian's house, which is was my first key. So, okay, moment. Diana's not a great judge of character because I thought at first she was because she was like, Jillian's a little creepy, but then she's going to Jillian for some support after this like debacle at the academic party. And then she knocks on the door, hoping her friend will kind of help her work shit out. And then there's Knox, right? Do you want to know what I think? What? I think because Jillian is so like gullible and easily manipulated, I think Knox knew Diana was gonna go to was gonna go to Jillian's house, and he put himself there before she could get there, so that way he could disrupt that trust between them. Yeah, so I actually think that might be true, right? That she's just an idiot um, yeah. versus like malicious. Um, but when she realizes that this like magical world is way smaller than she thought, she goes to look for Matthew, right? And um, Matthew's in his home, which has like great motherfucking wallpaper. I was like, oh my God, where did you get it, Matthew? And I got totally distracted. Um, but, you know, apparently he's not like breathing over her shoulder anymore in this episode, which is great. Because she had to go looking for him. And I was like, girl, all you have to do is turn around. He's usually in a corner, like, mouth breathing. So she goes to look for Matthew at his great wall, his great wallpapered apartment. And she tells him about what happened with the Scandinavian witch. And that Knox has been kind of all up in her face. And he <laughs> tells her to calm the fuck down because her heart's racing. And he can feel it. It's too high. And it's like the pheromones like he's gonna eat her yeah he's definitely hungry yeah and so she like calms her heart rate down which i'm like that is not that easy to do she calms her heart rate down and then he asks her like why did you come like why are you here right she's like i don't have anyone else and there's no one else i can trust and i'm like what makes you think you can trust him then again he does seem like the most trustworthy person we've met um, but Matthew lets her know what he let White Butler know, which is he doesn't think witches created vampires. And so I'm wondering why Knox thinks that and what mythology and lore goes into that. Um, but he again says it, the book contains stuff that's important and we're dying off. So. Yeah, I think it's like a level of like, what guy do you trust, right? I think Knox wants to use the book as like a tactical element where Matthew's actually invested in the scholarship of it. And that's why when Matthew really, to, to get Diana's trust, he doesn't do it by force. He does it through, which is ultimately the sexiest thing, his brain, right? He and her start talking about, it, lo and behold, Charles Darwin. And she finds out that he knew Charles Darwin and that he was very really integral into Darwinianism and how it could be applied to creatures. And so there go, we find out how old Matthew really is. And he is hella old. He's like, what, 300 plus years old? I can't remember. Yeah. But he's old. And, you know, I'm just saying, like, there's something about an older man. I'm just saying. But, you know, if he wasn't sexy before, he's definitely sexy now 
yeah no completely completely agree and uh, so matthew asks her to put a coat on because hello it's oxford and she wears fabulous coats so it's cold my blue coat <laughs> your blue coat is there um and you know because he can hear her heart and her adrenaline um he can you know tell that she's probably attracted to him or that there's something there between the two of them and so he tells her again to please calm down because he's being distracted right right like honestly this reminds me of youth group where it was like women be modest or else men are gonna rape you and i can't help but like be like Ugh, okay enough uh but he does take her to the vampire kiki right the vamp kiki uh, the vamp kiki the genetics vamp kiki and they're they've been testing the genetic 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 makeup of these creatures that are in danger right so matthew introduces miriam and marcus um and marcus is like super creepy because he's like oh ab negative that's great blood and i'm like seriously guys like it's like they've never been around humans right it's like well i'm into marcus he can smell whatever I know he you're wants. into marcus i know you and marcus me and dominico perfect date but um but so they let them know, like they, they let Diana know what their theory is, which is something is happening that is getting rid of the creatures and magical beings in the world. Um, they give us a bunch of science about DNA, which we all know is not why we're here. So if you're a scientist, love you. Thank you for your hard work, but we're not breaking down DNA. The only nope. point is we're going extinct. <laughs> you're going extinct, Go people. Extinct. Um, and then we flip back to Knox and Jillian who are talking about like they're having this like over tea conversation of like oh i wonder who diana's talking to now that we freaked her the fuck out and it's like well maybe you could have not done that but all right and like jillian's like she's friends with matthew right and the uh -oh. weird scandinavian witch is right there and she's like i looked into her she's got some trauma and i'm like bitch who doesn't so your magical first of all you killed you right. lived in the woods lady. i could touch any random stranger on the street roll my eyes and be like oh the trauma and I, this is like where i have my Alyssa milano charmed like uh <laughs> powers like where i would just go and touch someone and like act like i'm having like a right. premonition and be like oh don't cross that street john can i tell you though that my aunt can actually do this i'm which one my aunt sonia uh, so i do come from a long line of witches and i'm not actually saying that as a joke it's just kind of family lore but my aunt Sonia is probably the most powerful one of my mom's sisters. My mom has like five sisters. But um, my aunt Sonia, when she was younger, was known for like being able to sense things in a room and sense things about people. And like one of the stories that lives in my family mythology is that one time my aunt Sonia was like hanging out with her friends and her friend's younger brother came into the room and my aunt Sonia felt like a serious, this is how Colombian mythology works, right? Who knows if this is true, but like that this young man walked into the room and my aunt went really freezing cold, right? And she looks him dead in the face and she was like, why'd you try to kill yourself? And this gentleman had like a very big sweater on. He rolls his sleeves up and he had cuts all up and down his arms, right? So like, my aunt is actually like the Scandinavian woman. She's like terrifying. I love her. She, she's the one who taught me everything I know, but it makes me laugh because I'm super cynical, but I also want to say I'm cynical because I love the camp of this show, but I'm also extremely respectful. Uh, not extremely respectful. I have a lot of respect for folks who have relationships with the supernatural and who like identify as, um, you know, witches. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. I'm glad you're my friend. Right. Do you want to talk to Sonia? <laughs> I would love to meet her. She she honestly, like, there are days where, like, I'll go I'll go say hi to her. She lives, like, an hour away from me. And I'll walk in, and she goes, oh, sweetie, the happiness. And I'm like, shit, man. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about it. But she knows within a second. The only thing she's never gotten right is she seriously always thinks I'm pregnant. And I'm like, no, I'm just fat. Like, calm down. First of all, you're not fat. So, moving <laughs> on. Okay. So, we get to the last part of the episode, and this is where the episode sold me if you haven't watched it before, because Matthew and Diana have some really great scenes, but Matthew's encouragement of Diana to not be afraid of her powers is a really powerful moment between the both of them. And I think you see Matthew coming to terms with the fact of how he feels about Diana and the way that diana feels about matthew and because they're very good actors it's very nuanced and you know it's going to be unpeeled like an onion and so 
Matthew tells her that desire and fear run in the world and Diana really needs to reject this fear and go for desire because that's truly what will be freeing for her in the end. And she is clearly desiring Matthew, but something clicks in her where she, I think, finally realizes she can trust Matthew. And right as he walks away, she tells him about the book, something that he's been wanting forever, but he earned her trust. He didn't ask, he didn't force it like Peter Knox. He showed her that he cared for her because he really does. I mean, he does want to eat her too, but like, you know, we'll get back to that. But he, she tells him that, you know, three pages were cut out and that she too on the, on the, on the book saw the picture of the alchemical child and that, you know, it was this upside down vessel and they hold hands. He reaches down and kisses her wrist and he's able to not eat her. And he walks away and the scene pans in on, Diana, on Diana's face and those beautiful blue eyes and the episode ends. Yeah, it was a great, like a great episode. Like, it's a really great episode and it only gets better. I do have to tell you that. Every no, and it's moment. getting, it's like, I don't want to say it started off weak. It's just like, look, I love anything that's campy and dark and a grown-up version of Harry Potter with some sex. Like, we're all good. It's just, it's funny because like, I tend to be extremely kind of like sarcastic and whatnot, but like by the second episode, I was like, oh, I'm totally in. To the point where I was like, Mars, you got to stop watching because you have like actual work to do. Exactly. Um, and thankfully, because you now have the Sundance Now app, we can watch it God. all together. Right? I know. No, super exciting. But a great second episode. Um, a lot, like a lot of this is, like world building and also plot building, right? So I think we're about to start to take off on the actual plot development. So now we know where they are, who they are, and what, they, what they're after, right? Witches are after yeah. destruction of vampires. Vampires are after the information to save themselves. White Butler loves Matthew, but is afraid to tell him. Like we know everything that's happening. Yeah, I would have to say, having seen some of the other future episodes, um, shit starts to really go fast, like around episode four and five. And because there are only eight episodes in the season, like things move really fast and it's it gets really exciting. And I'm so excited that we're going to be doing it. I'm, I'm on board. So with that, that is our covering of the second episode. We will be back next week for episode three. Um, Tweet us, engage with us. We want to hear from you. Um, I promise the uh, the tweeter who was like, Marcy, please do not watch or do not read the books. Let's have both of you on different pages. I promise I will not read the books until we're done. Um, so thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Mm -hmm.